When you don't have it, you desperately want to get it. When it's yours, you enjoy it, but you also want to share it with others. When you have it, it feels like you're never going to lose it. And if, if you don't have it, hearing others talk about it is annoying and it almost feels impossible that you would ever get it. It doesn't change everything, but it seems to make even the weirdest circumstances almost enjoyable. But without it, great circumstances can feel empty. What is it? It's not money, but you guessed it. It's joy. And lately, I think one way to think about joy is this. It's the strength we need, and yet the thing that we often lack. In the NIV introduction in the study Bible to the book of Philippians, we find out that it's called the epistle, the letter of joy. Biblica.com tells us that 16 times in all of its forms, joy is used in this short letter in these four chapters. You and I, regardless of where we're at, regardless of what we're feeling, what our week's been like, or what this next week up ahead is going to be, we could all use a little bit more joy. None of us, none of us has too much joy in our lives. And I don't think I'm just speaking for myself. Well, as we jump into the book of Philippians over the next month, as we grow together through each verse and chapter, there's five quick things that I want to remind us of each week when we gather so that we can get the most out of this time together and the most out of Philippians. Number one, before it was a book, it was a letter. Number two, it was written for us, but it was not written to us. Number three, it deals with local concerns, issues, and relationships, but there are global principles for us to take from it. Number four, it was written by a man named Paul, who was a religious zealot, an extremist, a terrorist, a murderer, who had an encounter with Jesus, and that changed everything about him. Lastly, number five, it's a unique letter and that it's the only letter in the New Testament that was not written to rebuke or to correct or to speak into a local community's concern, but it was written from the posture of love and thanksgiving. All right, real quick, let's run it back and we'll dive deep real quick into these five. Number one, before it was a book, it was a letter. This helps us to understand what it meant for them then and what it could mean for us now. Number two, it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. This helps us to understand the context, to get into the history and culture, so that before we step into obedience, we step into understanding. Number three, it deals with local concerns, but has global principles. Anytime we read scripture, it's important to read it for what it is and then to ask God to help us apply it for what it could be for us. Number four, it was written by Paul. And this is so interesting and connected to number five because the church, the Jesus community at Philippi that was receiving this letter originally, they weren't going through crisis, but it seemed like Paul was. He was imprisoned. 
He had had a difficult season, and yet he speaks of joy. And then circling back to number five, the fact that this is the only epistle written with the primary motivation of thanksgiving and gratitude makes it the perfect letter, the perfect place for us to start our semester together. Before we dive back into our focus verses, why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you that the Holy Spirit helps us as believers to really invest in, interrogate, interpret, and interact with what you're trying to tell us and teach us. Help us to walk away from this moment with a clear glimpse of your character and with more direction on how we are to live our lives outside of these moments, outside of these gatherings. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, our focus verses um, are from Philippians 1, which you heard read earlier. And we're going to focus on the section um, of verse 12 through 14. I'll summarize what else is happening in that segment of Scripture. Maybe the heading under your Bible says, Paul's chains advance the gospel. And then we'll look at what's probably one of the most well-known phrases from Paul, which is in verse 21. So I want to read this again, and you can read it with me. By the way, if you're watching on dckialpha.com slash worship, go to the notes tab. We've got resources, fill in the blanks, quotes, books that we mentioned. will all be there for you, and we just want to make that available. All right, Philippians 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have been confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, there's so much in chapter 1 that we could dig into together, but I really want us to focus on what is happening in the life and story of Paul. Like I mentioned earlier, he's writing this, he's on his second missionary journey, and this church at Philippi helped him financially. They also sent a worker to join him, which we'll read about in coming chapters. And he says thank you, but then he also kind of does something unique. He He kind of says, hey, I know you're concerned about me. I'm thankful for the ways that you've cared for me. But actually, things on the ground are a little bit better than they seem. And it's not that his circumstances have suddenly improved. It's that he's looking at his circumstances with a very different viewpoint, with the view of inner joy because of Jesus, but also with the view of the kingdom. He's measuring his reality against whether the kingdom is in an advance mode or whether it's in retreat. Later in this uh, segment of verses, we see that Paul actually wrestles with not knowing for sure how he wants the story to end. Tim Mackey and the Bible Project folks, they talk about how Paul's at this crossroads. Like if he is executed, well, then he will be fully in the kingdom of God with Jesus, but that if he's released, he would be able to advance the kingdom among other Jesus communities like those in Philippi and beyond. That's where we actually get verse 21, where it says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's not sure what's coming up. And it seems like he's not even sure 
where he would direct his prayers because everywhere he looks, he sees the advancement of the good news. If he dies, he gets to advance and be with Jesus. If he lives and is released, he gets to spend more time in discipleship and mentoring relationships with those that he so clearly loves and cares for. I'm reminded of the words of John Lewis to get into good trouble. For me, this is one of the clearest passages where someone in Scripture has gotten into good trouble. This is not about success, about self-promotion. This isn't about, like many Old Testament characters I'm reading about in my daily reading plan, like Jacob or Isaac or Esau, who are trying to do God's will their own way. No, this is someone whose life is surrendered, who's advancing the gospel, who's in good trouble, and then he learns a valuable lesson that I feel like I've been relearning this past year and a half. It's this, that sometimes the reward for faithfulness is more opportunities to be faithful. Let me break it down a little bit. Sometimes the reward for faithfulness isn't success or comfort or ease, but more difficult circumstances. None of us probably want to hear that. That's not going to be on a t-shirt or maybe in our Twitter bio, but that's the reality. A mentor of mine would say it like this in more of a work or, or corporate setting, that the reward for good work isn't rest or time off, it's, it's more work. And so in this letter, we're discovering that Paul's heart to advance the gospel continues to to lead him into circumstances that are difficult. And yet, it's because of his inner joy in Jesus that also translates to the joy that he has in gathering and teaching and knowing other believers that keep him strong. Here's what I love about Paul in this letter and in other writings in the New Testament. Paul doesn't wait for his external circumstances to change to find that inner resolve and joy. Now, you've probably heard me say it before. My favorite holiday of all time is New Year's. And I know that's like a really bad Christian or pastor response. I didn't pick Christmas. I didn't pick Easter. But I was really excited for this new year, 2021. Now, of course, I know That even though it's helpful to reflect on the previous year, and even though it's thrilling to get a new calendar or a new journal and to pick a new word or resolution, that a global health pandemic, the virus doesn't know what year time it is. That injustice and white supremacy won't bend to the simple progression of time. We know that through history. But I was really hopeful and a little bit of joy was kind of creeping in as we shifted from December 31st to January 1st. And as you could have guessed, it seems like it's all crashing down that we're in the alley near the dumpster fire once again. Here's where I think I went wrong. I was waiting or hoping that the external would change and that would impact me internally instead of remembering that the people that made the most difference, the greatest leaders and change makers, had an inner joy that then led them to be a part of change making externally. 
It's easy to get those reversed, and I think I was guilty of that. But when I think of Joan of Arc or Corey Ten Boom, when I think of A.W. Tozer or William Wilberforce, when I think of James Cone or Martin Luther King Jr., when I think of Oscar Romero and so many other faithful saints that have made a tangible difference in the world around them, it's because they operated from a place of joy, not from a place of happiness, not from a place where... Kind of, it is what it is, and it's always going to be that way. No, they operated from a place of knowing whose they were in God, in His family, and in their identity. And then from that posture of inner resolve and inner strength, that's where they began to make a difference in the world around them. That's the type of person and leader I want to be. And that's the type of person and follower of Jesus, the type of college student that this world needs. Someone who doesn't wait for change to happen out there before allowing change to happen in here. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to form us, to move us, to make us, so then we can begin to operate from the posture of joy in order to bring joy and the good news to others. Let's circle right back to that verse in our focus verses. Verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have been confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. That seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward, pretty vanilla. But when we realize, when he says brothers and sisters... In verse 14, we need to identify who those brothers and sisters are. Well, actually, in 13, it tells us it's the whole palace guard that because of Paul's witness and words have now become brothers and sisters. Now, get this. Paul's view of God is so big. His picture of grace is so scandalous that the people that are literally in charge of imprisoning him, he now considers them brothers and sisters in Christ because they have repented, because they have come into the family of God, because they have found Jesus. And that's, that's incredible. It's mind-blowing. And then it says they've become confident in the Lord, back to verse 14, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. That's the question I think that's probably before us today. Are we living in such a way that we're becoming more confident in the Lord and that we are daring all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now get this. Remember, Paul is saying this from prison. Paul is saying this before he knows whether he's going to be delivered or rescued. And yet he's saying that the actions that he's taking are causing others to take similar actions. That they would speak and act out the gospel without fear. Now, it's not because they have a guarantee from a Roman ruler or from a city official in Philippi that they're not going to get into any more trouble. No, it's that they've stopped fearing the trouble because they count the gospel as worth it. Not just for themselves, but for those that have not heard yet. I love that Paul is in tune with the reality around him. He knows he's in a difficult situation, and yet he's choosing to see it from the vantage point of heaven. He's choosing to look at it with a kingdom lens. He's zooming out from his temporary discomforts, 
We'll read more about that in chapters 3 and 4. And he's saying, man, the kingdom of God is advancing and that is enough for me right now. I like the language that he uses and how the NIV renders it. He's, people are becoming confident and they're daring all the more to proclaim the gospel. They're risking. They're stepping out in faith. They're choosing to be uncomfortable for a moment so that God might show up and make a difference in somebody's life. One of the questions that I've been asking myself as I've had conversations with mentors and time with my journal and Bible in this new year is, has this global health pandemic made me more spiritually risk averse? Now, I think it's important to take every precaution when we're talking about in real life. Most of my life is lived on Zoom, on screens. But I'm talking about spiritually, like, have I unintentionally let that kind of slip over? Like, I'm being very healthy and conscious and guarded in my in-person interactions. And then have I let that same kind of mood translate spiritually and that I'm not living out what Paul's inviting us to live out, to be confident in the Lord and then to dare to proclaim the gospel. When I think about the times that I've shared my faith with others, whether sharing about who Jesus is to me, sharing about a worship time that I had with some friends when somebody asked me how my week was. I typically hesitate to share when I begin to worry about how that person will feel in that moment. Will they feel awkward? Will I become that Jesus guy? Will they expect it because I'm in ministry? But when I start to think about the future feelings of that individual and how I know that God wants to see them whole and redeemed and set free, well, then I'm more likely to be confident, like Paul says, and to dare in that moment to share a little bit of my faith with someone. And I want to encourage you to think about that. Are we living confidently? Are you living confidently and looking for ways to dare to speak out and live out the gospel. Maybe it's in your life group. Maybe there's things in your past, in your story, you haven't yet shared and yet you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you to walk in vulnerability. Maybe it's with your mentor, whether it's a, a life group leader or a staff mentor, and, and, and there's things that you have questions about, doubts that you have, and you've been hesitant because you're not sure how someone might feel about you. But let me tell you, your future wholeness should be the priority and you should step out. Maybe there's someone who's struggling. You notice this every time you're in a group project over Zoom, every time you see them in the lecture classes online, and, and, and you just want to speak a word of encouragement to them or let them know, hey, I've been praying for you and you're not sure how they would react. Can I encourage you to take Paul's words seriously, to recognize that he's in a difficult spot, and it probably feels difficult and what you're going through. And yet we can be confident in Jesus and we can dare, like Paul says, we can dare to proclaim the gospel and we can do so without fear. Now, again, this is not a guarantee that the conversation won't get awkward, that it might not get weird or that you, you, you will not face rejection. No, this is an encouragement that those things may not matter as much as we think that they do. Let's go back to verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul will talk about it in later chapters, that he's discovered the secret to contentment. But I want to give a little bit of spoiler alert. It's because of Jesus. 
It's because all roads in Paul's mind lead to Jesus. He's not concerned about finishing this missionary journey or taking a possible third journey. He's not worried about how the churches would be doing without him. He's trusting the Lord to empower local leaders there. He's spending time with them in correspondence. But he's seriously saying, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Verse 23, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. What a beautiful perspective for Paul to be in. Not at the end of his life when he's successful, where he knows how things are going to work out. But he's saying that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the difficulties. Oh, by the way, and this is a kind of an important aside. Philippi was a Roman colony. And the Bible Project videos, which do a great job of giving overviews of themes of different books of the Bible, tell us that Paul actually had a difficult time when he first started preaching the kingdom and preaching allegiance to King Jesus in Philippi because people were so nationalistic and patriotic towards Rome. In fact, even though they are a Roman colony, they dressed like, talked like, and started to act like they were Romans themselves. I just feel like that's an interesting thing to note. Being in D.C., in the time that we're in, Paul continues to press in. He doesn't, he doesn't say that they should disregard their city. In fact, the Old Testament says we should work to bless the cities that we're in. But he does tell us that our true king as followers of Jesus is God. Our true king isn't maybe who's in office, but our true king, our true allegiance is to something greater and to something stronger. Here's the question before we respond in worship. Have we ever gotten in good trouble before? And what's stopping us from getting into good trouble now? I think there's two groups of people. There's a group of people that avoid trouble at all costs in any area of life. And then there's the group of people who get in trouble all the time because they just want to buck against what the norm is. But it's interesting that Scripture gives us a third way. And I find that so clear in John Lewis's teachings and in his life, in the way he modeled it in public service, that we are to get into good trouble. If we're following Jesus, if we're living as ambassadors of Christ, as citizens of heaven, we're going to face rejection and criticism. There is going to be trouble. The question is, will we get into the right kind of trouble And will we continue to be faithful just as Paul was faithful? Let's worship together. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to view you as good, to dare to proclaim the gospel. And that as we worship, this wouldn't encapsulate all of our response from Philippians 1, but it would start us on a trajectory to live in joy, to live more faithful And to recognize that sometimes advancing the gospel means being uncomfortable, but ultimately, because you're with us, it's worth it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.